Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, once again, good morning. I love you so very much, and I'm so grateful to be in God's house as we open up His Word and among His people, asking for the power of His Spirit. Uh, It has been an interesting journey the past few months. We've had a chance to walk through the book of Jonah. And we've, 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 uh, that chapter has come to a close and I've always felt convicted as a pastor, the best thing I can do to shepherd the people of this church is to give you a steady diet of God's word. And since we were several weeks in an Old Testament narrative, now we're in a New Testament letter, completely different format, completely different Testament, still fully the inspired word of God. Every word straight from the mouth of our Creator. And we're going to be looking through the next few weeks. This will take us through the spring and the summer as well. We'll be looking at the book of James. And the title of our sermon series is Putting Feet to Our Faith. Putting Feet to Our Faith. Now, you'll see in your uh, bulletins uh, uh, not only our listening guide for today in blue, but your sermon series study guide in yellow. Go ahead and just stick that in your Bibles. I know some have study Bibles with these notes already in there. Uh, The collection of notes here is some of the best of the best from what I've studied and prepared. But uh, just keep that in your Bibles. It'll help you as we begin to study and walk through James together. I do want to draw your attention to something on here before we dive into the message. And that's this. On the back of the the series study guide, under number three, where it says additional notes and quotes, I want to draw your attention to this quote. Uh, This is B, notable quotes about James. This is from Dr. Scott Duvall. And here's what it says. It says, James calls our attention to another important dimension of the faith, the good works that flow out of genuine faith. Saving faith will eventually result in a life changed in tangible ways, such as how we spend money, what we say about other people, and how we face trials. I think that's a great way to explain uh, the book of James. And what's a, a helpful reading tip as we walk through this book together? Well, This first sentence, due to its practical nature, Christian readers acknowledge that the book of James is simple to understand, but not always easy to apply. If you're new to church, or if you're new to the Bible, or maybe it's been a long time since you've read the Bible, can I say something? The book of James, I believe, is the simplest and easiest book in the New Testament to understand. There's very little about the book of James that's confusing, even for a new believer. But what is simple is not always easy. And as we walk through this book, it's practical Christian living, just like the title of our sermon series, Putting Feet to Our Faith. If you are a Christian, the book of James tells you what your day-to-day life is going to look like. All right, these are going to be some heavy words, but they're going to be some good words. And they're also going to be some words that we can take and apply it directly to our life. We are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only as James tells us, and we'll get to that message eventually. That's not where we are today. But the title of our message today as we open up the book of James will be in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The title of our message today is Transformed by Our Trials. Transformed by Our Trials. And so I want to start off this message the way I typically do with giving you something to think about. And the question I want to ask you to think about is this. Do the trials of your life leave you feeling hopeless? Do the trials of your life lead you feeling hopeless? As, we're, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see that trials are not only inevitable, but they're ordained of God. But as you're walking through them, do you feel hopeless in the midst of them? I think the hopelessness comes when we don't realize the purpose that God has. I remember this uh, pastor, maybe you've heard of him, his name is Johnny Hunt. 
He's the pastor of First Baptist Woodstock, Georgia, uh, one of the biggest and uh, most prominent churches in our convention, both in the state and in the Southern Baptist Convention. And Johnny Hunt's been preaching, I think, 40 years now. He's a tremendous man of God. He's also a faithful alumni at my seminary, so he comes to Southeastern Seminary uh, every year to preach. In fact, he preached a message that convicted my heart to apply for this pastorate because I had been uh, questioning whether God was calling me to be a pastor, and he preached a message that just gripped my heart. Here's what he said in one of his messages about hope. He said that human beings can live 40 days without food. They can live four days without water. They can live four minutes without oxygen. But it's hard to live four seconds without hope. Every single one of us needs hope. We live in a fallen and a broken world Sometimes the trials that we're experiencing come from the fact that it's simply a broken world that we live in. Sometimes we're in trials because of the decisions that we have made. Whatever the case may be, we know that not only does God allow them, but God ordains for them to happen. God is not confused by the trial. God ordained that the trial would take place. But if we don't know why God allows trials, we will never find hope. We will never find hope. In fact, one of the phrases that has no power in it whatsoever, there's no power in this phrase, but I know I've said it. Everyone's probably said it. Everything happens for a reason. Well, if you don't know what the reason is, you have no hope. We're going to talk about what the reason of your trials are today. We're going to talk about that reason. And we're going to talk about why God's using this to transform you and His ultimate goal to make you more like Jesus Christ. You know, I think about the, the passage that we often quote in Romans 8.28, and it is one of my favorite passages. We quote and believe that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. But what good are they working towards? Well, let me, let me answer that by telling you our big idea for today. What's the big idea? If you are a Christian, God is using your trials to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, every single ounce of pain that you experience is working towards a greater good, and that greater good is it's making you more like Jesus. And that's the ultimate goal of your life. That's the reason that you are placed on this planet to have relationship with God, but also that you would fully resemble the Son of God. So, if you want to know how we can be transformed by our trials, grab a Bible. And join me in the book of James. If you do not have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be on page 1199 in your Pew Bibles, okay? 1199 in your Pew Bibles. If you're new to the church or new to the Bible, okay, the, the big letters, those are the big numbers, those are the chapters. So the big number one and then the small numbers of the verses will be in verses one through four. And if you would stand out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, And we'll read the glorious truth of this passage together again. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let us read God's word together, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we love you. And we thank you and praise you for this glorious day that you have made. Father, 
we enter into this journey together, this book of James that you inspired many, many centuries ago. And yet the truth is applicable today as it's ever been. Father, I pray uh, for your help. I pray that you would send your precious Holy Spirit to be with me and to be with us as we open up this word and we consider the truth of this word, both today and throughout the study of this book. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth of what authentic Christian living looks like and that we would respond to this in repentance, faith, surrender, and obedience to your word. Be with us now, Father. Help us to see how it is that our trials can and will transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray, and God's people said, Amen. So how does this transform us? Well, there's three points that I'd like to make as we walk through this passage together, and I'm going to stop at various points to make application because I think everybody in this room can fully understand and fully appreciate going through a trial. I said this while we were going through the book of Jonah. I don't know if you were here for that, but I talked about uh, seeking out God in the storm, and I said every single person is either going into a storm, coming out of a storm, or is in the midst of a storm. And, I, and as I was preparing the message, uh, even last night as I was doing seminary homework, I came across a study that said, uh, statistically speaking, Christian families experience great trials once every six months. Some, it seems like every day, all right? There are some who may be blessed and in a season right now where things are going pretty well. But they say, on average, about every six months, your family's going to face a significant trial of some kind. What kind of trial? Well, I'll get to that in just a minute. But let's walk through the passage. The first point that I'd like to make today is pretty simple, the trials of our faith. Let's look at the trials of our faith. Verses 1 through 2 say this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, the very beginning of the letter. And I think many times, I'm going to be honest, this is how I have typically read the Bible in the past. I skip right over the first couple of verses because all it is is a greeting. It's a dear John, so why am I reading it? Well, I've learned not to do that anymore because there's truth in everything. And so we see the very beginning of the passage here, and here's what it says. James, a servant of God. Who is James? First of all, let me say this. James, if you don't know this, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure if you're aware of the history of James, but James was not a believer in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. He did not come to faith in Jesus Christ until the resurrection. And after that, God tremendously blessed him. And in his final days, as we learn in the book of Acts, James was a leader in the Jerusalem church, which was very prominent. And he was also a leader in the Jerusalem council. And so his job was to help Jewish Christians, okay, Jews who became believers in Jesus, God was leading him to teach them how they could maintain their culture but be faithful to what it means to be a Christian, be a Jewish Christian. And so basically he's addressing Jewish Christians, those who were Jewish, who came to faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and now they're trying to figure out what do we do. And so he says right here, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. All right, the word dispersion is not very common among Christians, so if you're not aware of what that word means, here's what it means. There's two meanings to it. The first one is this. In the Old Testament, we know the nation of Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. The sons of Jacob represented those 12 tribes of 
Israel. But as we walk through the Old Testament, we see those tribes, much like those brothers, did not get along. There was a lot of discord and a lot of conflict. So at the time of King Rehoboam, we see a splitting of the tribes. And 10 of the 12 tribes are considered the northern kingdom. They go in one direction. And the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they go to the southern kingdom. And some people refer to that as the dispersion. They spread out and there's a separation of the kingdom. But that's not the dispersion that James is talking about in this passage. Here's what James is talking about. James is talking about Jewish Christians who have to leave their homes in Jerusalem because of their faith, and they're scattered all over Palestine. These are people who left their homes, they left their jobs, they left their communities. All right, when this letter was written, most likely it was copied and distributed all over house churches in Palestine. People were in hiding because of their faith, and they didn't know why or what to do about it. They were experiencing trials because of their faith. And so James is addressing them, and right away, he addresses the idea of trials because he knows the readers understand what a trial is. They, they, they know poverty. They know persecution. All because they believe in Jesus Christ and their Jewish friends who did not receive the Messiah are heavily persecuting them. But here's what he says. He goes right from greeting them and he jumps right in in verse 2 to say, well, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And right there, I don't know if it surprised them, but it certainly surprises Americans in 2017 when you say count it all joy when you experience trials. How do we count it all joy? Well, I think first of all, we need to understand what joy is according to the word of the Lord. When God says count it all joy in the midst of trials, he's not talking about positive thinking and he's not talking about putting on a fake veneer of happiness when you, deep inside you're struggling, what joy means is contentment no matter what happens. You know who's in control and you know what he's doing. And even though you may be in pain and if you read the, the Psalms, you will see some of the greatest men of God call out in pain and say, why God, why God? But they never question the goodness of God. They never question, they may question why God does something, but never that he's good in doing it. And at the end of almost every single one of those Psalms, you see a turn at the very last part of the passage that'll say, but you are God, but you are the Lord. Your steadfast love endures forever. And that's what James is telling us, that in the midst of trials, the Christian response to a trial is joy. Again, it's not walking around and and hugging everybody's neck with a big smile on your face and trying to pretend that you are something that you're not, okay? What it is, is that your heart is consistently content. You You are not shaken by what you're experiencing in your life. Because you know who Jesus is and you know what he's done for you and you know what he's promised to do for you in the future. That's joy according to the word. So further down in verse 2 he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Here's what I love about this. book of James is what's called a general letter. Which means God, or God when he spoke through James was not speaking to a specific church like Corinthians. He was not speaking to a specific person like Titus. He was speaking generally to the tribes with a general message. And even though all of God's word applies to us as believers, it's always easier to apply a general truth as we look through it here. We know we all experience trials. And I don't think God intended to name a specific trial so that when we were preaching and teaching this word, 
millennia later, we could say, no matter what trial you're facing, you're supposed to experience joy. So, what about us in 2017? Because we're not persecuted necessarily because of our faith. Some of you may be. You may have family members that have disowned you for some reason because you have put your faith in Christ. But in the Bible Belt, it's rare. Some of us have experienced that. There are certain family members that I'm not as close with as I used to be since I became a Christian. But by and large, I have been praised and not persecuted for my faith in South Georgia. That's why I love this particular part of the world and why I want to raise my daughter here, if I'm being honest. But I I do face trials, and so does everybody in this room. So when I say trials, I mean physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, professional, relational, or a combination of all of those. As I look around this room right now, there's a thousand stories being untold by the looks in your eyes. You're all experiencing trials. All of you. And, And James is saying, don't be surprised. Be joyful. Now, if we don't know the reason why we should be joyful, that's an impossibility. Thank goodness there's more to the text. All right, so before we move on to number two, let me just make a point of application and say this. Are you struggling right now in your present trial to find joy? Is it hard to find joy in the season that you're in? If it is, I pray you stay with me here as we walk through this passage because it's through this passage that we'll know God's ultimate purpose. So we move on from the trials of our faith to number two, the testing of our faith. So the trials are the noun. The testing is the verb. Okay, we go from the problem to the purpose. Okay, let's look at verse 3. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now again, I think steadfastness is the most accurate way to translate that word from the Greek. However, in 2017, we don't walk around Candler County using the word steadfastness a whole lot. So let's, let's fill in the blank with a word that we would use. I think the best word that I could fill in the blank with is consistency. Consistency. Read it this way. For you know that the testing of your faith produces consistency. The consistent Christian life. You know, when I was first a believer... And uh, there are some in this room that, that got to know me really well when I first became a believer, and I was extremely passionate, but my, my highs were high and my lows were low. And I finally had a pastor come to me and read me the title of a book, uh, the Eugene Peterson, who wrote a, a, a translation of the Bible called The Message, also has a book that's entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is not so much highs and lows, it's consistently believing and living out your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's steadfastness. It's consistency. And that consistency can only happen when that faith is tested. All right? I'll talk in a minute about how our spiritual faith is like a physical muscle. If it's not exercised, it's not, it's not going to be useful. It's got to be stretched. It's got to be exercised. But let me stop and, and give you another example of an image, and actually this image is very biblical, but I'll tell you why in a minute. But this illustration gets to us better understanding the word steadfastness or consistency. So stay with me on this illustration because you'll see at the end why I'm bringing this up. So I was 16 years old. Okay, this would have been the, uh, shortly after the fall of 2000, or excuse me, 1996. Man, the time flies, does it not? All right, 1996, and one of my best friends was a man named Dean Holstein. Still is one of my best friends, uh, one of the greatest friends a brother could ever ask for. 
Right now, he's at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, serving our military as a combat engineer. He, uh, when he was 16 years old, he was the first one in my neighborhood to get a car. Okay, he got a 1987 Maroon Pontiac Grand Am Luxury Edition. Luxury Edition means it has cloth seats and a cassette player. All right, and he got the car, and we're driving it around the neighborhood, and I had just seen the movie Bad Boys. And I was riding shotgun in the car, and I looked over to him, whispered to him, I said, Dean, you drive almost slow enough to drive Miss Daisy. And he got to the top of our street, and this is just God keeping his hand a blessing at a time when teenagers are being stupid. He put his foot on the floor, and we went, praise God it was a Grand Am, (laughs) a four-cylinder car, because it took a while to get to 60 miles an hour. But he got to about 60 miles an hour. And then he had the audacity to take his hands off the wheel and say, look at my alignment. It's perfect. And I grabbed the wheel and jerked it to the right. And he got scared and overcompensated to the left. And we spun out and hit an oak tree sideways. We we pulled up on this front lawn and just completely messed up the front lawn of this, this older lady's house down the street and hit it sideways. Now, let me tell you why I'm bringing all of this up. By the grace of God, there were some bumps and bruises, nothing serious. But I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, what do we do? You're 16 years old. You come up with some bad ideas really quickly. And so we put the car in reverse and it was still drivable, but it was just the hubcaps were grinding against the the asphalt. And we get back to my house. We run up to my bedroom and we're pacing up the bedroom. And what do we do? And finally I said, we've got to tell the truth. There's no way out of this. Your car has totaled. So we walk back down to that lady's house, and here's, here's where the application comes. We walk back down to the lady's house, and I was not even thinking this at the time, but we walk up to her house, and I look where the, the tracks are where the car went, and then my friend elbowed me and said, look at that tree. We hit that thing at 60 miles an hour, and there is not a scratch on it. The bark has not even been removed from it. And he said to me, when I buy a house someday, I hope I got an oak tree in my front yard. (laughs) And let me tell you something. That's biblical. In the book of Genesis, we see, talking about the faith, the the oak of Memorah. We talk about the oak, the strength of the oak. That's what a Christian is called to be. Unwavering. Spiritually speaking, when the Pontiac Grand Dams of your life hit you head on at 60 miles an hour, you are unmovable because of your faith. And your faith has been strengthened through trials. If you don't go through trials, you'll never stand the test of time when the grand ants coming at you full speed. That's what it means to be a Christian under trials, the testing of our faith. Here's the obstacle that we have, especially as Americans in a very affluent country. Our greatest obstacle is we want growth without pain. We want growth. We want to grow as a Christian, but we don't want to suffer to get there. Here's the problem with that. We know that's not true in our physical lives, so why should that be true in our spiritual lives? All right, physically, that's the equivalent of going to a gym and then canceling your membership because the equipment makes you sweat and makes you tired. That's what the equipment's supposed to do because if you don't take the physical muscles of your body and you don't, you don't exercise them to the point of stress and exhaustion and allow them to be torn and then rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt again, you will never have the strength that your muscles were created for. Well, spiritually speaking, it's the same way in the Christian life because it's easy. It's easy in South Georgia to call yourself a Christian. It's easy to make a profession of faith in Jesus. It's easy to hear a message or at a vacation Bible school or at camp or fill in the blank. 
You hear a message, you're moved by the message, you walk an altar, you say a prayer, you sign a card. In our case, you join a membership class. And then you get baptized, and then it's like you're off to the races. All right? I had a friend say this to me one time. At the, in the Christian race, everybody cheers you in the beginning when you put the number on your chest. But if you run the Christian race long enough, you'll get to a point in the race where the crowd is silenced. And you're all by yourself. And while you're running that particular stretch of the race is when you find out if you're really a Christian or not. If your heart has truly changed or if it hasn't. We have to go through it. I wish we didn't. I don't enjoy a trial any much more than anybody else in this room, but I know the purpose in it. Let me say this before we move on to our third and final point. There is a motivational speaker who's gotten really popular here in recent years. His name is Eric Thomas. Okay, if you, if for the younger folks who get on YouTube, you probably have seen an Eric Thomas video. He has become very popular in the sports arena. The Cleveland Cavaliers and all these other teams pay him a ton of money to come into their locker room and challenge their leaders. All right, Eric Thomas has made millions of dollars on one statement, and I'm going to tell you the statement which is meant for the business world, but then I'm going to apply it to the Christian world. All right, in the business world, he talks about people who are strong and successful and consistent in their business practices. All right, they get up at three o'clock in the morning, they do all the amazing things that a leader would do, and he calls them a beast. And he says, everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what real beasts do. Everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what real beasts do. Now, that's the business world, but let me talk about the spiritual world. Everybody in the church wants to be called a Christian until it's time to do what real Christians do. Everybody wants to call themselves a follower of Jesus until it's time to actually follow him. And the first time that we hit a trial, what happens is the reality of our faith finally comes to the light. And those who are truly Christian endure the trial and they become stronger. And those who are not really Christian, who never changed, they give up. They give up on the church. They give up on God's word. They just give up. They don't want to deal with the trial. They start, instead of worshiping God, they start questioning God. They start questioning what he's doing. And the worst part is they start questioning if he's good. Let me say this in light of the Easter message that we, we had last week. I think it is good and right and healthy from time to time to honestly question why God does certain things. He may not answer us, but the Bible is filled with men who say, why, oh, why, God? I don't think there's anything wrong with saying why. I think there's something hugely problematic about questioning if God is good. Because of what we talked about last week, about what Jesus did enduring the cross for our sins and carrying the pain on on his shoulders for what we did to give us his righteousness. If you question that God is good, you don't know Jesus. You don't know him. You may have heard his name. You may have prayed a prayer. But if you think that God isn't good, you're lost. And you need to be saved. And you need to give your life to Jesus. I don't care your background. I don't care what you've been through. If you do not know that God is good, you don't know Jesus. When people question the goodness of God, they think of some generic God up there who's like an overgrown child with a magnifying glass burning ants. That's not who God is. Anytime those people mention God, I never hear the name Jesus because Jesus gives us the full picture of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and together we see the goodness and the mercy of God. 
You can't possibly say Jesus has done for us what he's done and then still question that he's good. And so in the trials, we don't question his goodness. We find joy that he is good and that in the the working of that trial, we're becoming more like his son. We're becoming more like his son. So let me say this before I get to my final point and close this out. I'm going to get really practical with you because that's what James does. All right, I prayed through this and, and God stirred my emotions as I was preparing this message earlier this week. Let me just be tangible. Real Christians, okay, real Christians in the midst of trials. All right, let me, let me say what real Christians don't do when they face a trial. Real Christians don't send out resumes when things get tough at work. Real Christians don't cheat on spouses when things get tough at home. Real Christians don't visit other churches when things get tough in the pew. And here's two, maybe a little bit more specific to our church, and I'm telling you this because I love you, not because I want to make you feel guilty, but I want to challenge you to step up. Real Christians do not volunteer to serve our church and then completely abandon the responsibilities when it's their time to do it. There are certain people in this church who have garnered a reputation. They may put their name on a volunteer list, but when it comes time, they either never show up or they never even call and tell you they're not coming. And the reason why is when Sunday morning comes, something else more exciting all of a sudden becomes present in their lives. And I want to say this. I don't know how that's possible. I don't know how not being in God's house among God's people, reading God's word, experiencing the power of his spirit is less exciting than doing anything else. You say, well, you're a pastor. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And this last one, and I'm going to be hard on the men here because God's hard on the men. There's a, tradi- there's, a, there's a tradition in this area. I don't know why this is. Maybe it's because we live in a nice community that has a nice golf course and nice bodies of water for fishing and all these other types of things. But I'm going to tell you, it breaks my heart into a thousand pieces when men drop their wife and children off at church and go fishing and go hunting and go golfing on Sunday morning during God's time. It wears me out. What it says to me is, I don't know why, and I've actually, I've actually confronted a man about this, and here's what he said to me. You don't know how exhausting my week is. To which my response, and I didn't say this, I probably should have, you don't know Jesus. Why is it exhausting to worship the living God? Why is it not a joy to come and, and be a part of the worship and read his word and, and see the change that he's making in your life and the change he's making in the lives of others? Real Christians step up to the plate. Real men lead their families. They stand in front of their wives and they stand in front of their children and they open up and proclaim God's truth. And when men face these trials, they punt and say, I don't want this. I want something different. I, uh, I have a picture in my dining room that came from my mother-in-law. And it's a picture of a man and a woman, two different frames, but it's like one picture in two different frames. And the picture that I look at every time I sit at my table is this gray-bearded man who's got a loaf of bread on one side of the table and a Bible open on the other. And with every fiber of my being, I want to be that man for my wife. I want to be that man for my daughter. I want to be that man for my church. I want to be that man for my God. 
Sometimes I just want to grab men and say, wake up! Be a man! Lead your family! Stop being a sissy! You don't know how blessed you are. Stop making excuses. Put on your big boy pants and start following Jesus. Number three, the transformation of our faith. We go through trials, we go through testing. Here's the purpose. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's the final pro- product? What's the purpose? God wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to be like Jesus. Why is that so hard? I'm going to tell you why it's hard. Because we live in a country that says pursue happiness at all costs but we worship a God who says pursue holiness at all costs. Now, here's the good thing. You follow Jesus long enough and your holiness will become your happiness. You will enjoy following the Lord Jesus. But until you don't, if you're still in a season where it's difficult, just put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. One step at a time. One step at a time. I'll be honest with you. I, I've not been a, uh, the ideal husband or father this year. I'm learning. I, I've failed so many times I've failed. I'm not telling you, I'm not standing up here and saying, be like me. I'm standing up saying, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Not like me, like Jesus. But the, well, there's one thing, not because I'm the paid staff member of this church, but when I was driving a sweeper truck as a seminary student, I never once missed church. I never once just completely abandon the reading of God's word because I know that if I don't do the things of God, I'll never become the man of God that God has called for me to be. That's part of our mission statement, that heads, hearts, hands, transformed by the image of Jesus Christ. God wants to change you. He loves you. But you've got to surrender to him to let him do it. So let's sum all this up. God doesn't just want to save us. He wants to transform us. So let us endure our trials with joy so we can become like Jesus. Let's respond to trials the way Jesus would have us to respond. Let's have this in our mind, okay? You're going to leave the church here today. You're going to have lunch. A couple hours from now, you're going to say, man, I don't know what got into Bo today. All right? A couple days from now, you're going to forget everything I said. But if you remember one thing, remember this. If you're experiencing a trial, God is enabling it to happen because he wants you to be like Jesus. And you can have joy in that. Because the more like Jesus you are, the more glory and honor you bring to God. And there's nothing greater than living a life that you know brings honor and glory to the kingdom of God. Let me give you three takeaways at the bottom of your listening guide and we'll, we'll pray out here. Three things to remember. First of all, joy is based on perspective, not circumstances. 
Your circumstances will change as a Christian. Your perspective should not. Second, remember this. The teacher's always silent during the test. If God's testing you, he's not going to come and tell you the answers. You've got to walk with him through the test. And you will find out what he's called you to. And finally, trust in Jesus to become like Jesus. You can't become like Jesus if you're not a Christian because you don't have the Spirit of God in you. So let me close with this. I told you James is a tough book. I, I wept as I was preparing this message. I really did. It's he- these are heavy, heavy, heavy words. But I believe God is a God of grace and truth. I preached a lot of truth today. Let me offer grace. I don't care how much you've gone through in your past. Right now, right now, new beginning. God will wipe the slate clean. God will enable you to be the man or woman that you want to be, that God's called you to be, that maybe you have fallen short of. Clean slate. Come and give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you that don't know Jesus, you're a sinner who is standing in the face of a holy God, and until you repent of your sin, you are guilty before the Lord. But if you do repent and trust that God took care of it on the cross, let me tell you something. God adopts you and welcomes you into the family as a child of God. That's grace. And if you are a Christian, but maybe you've wandered, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We sing that hymn all the time. Come back home. Come back home to Jesus. Turn back to Him. He will love you. He will wipe the slate clean. And He will show you the way that you can be more like Him with every breath you take. Let's pray together. Father, we love You. And we thank You and praise You for this day. Heavenly Father, I, I love your people. I love this church, Father. And I just pray that although today is heavy truth, that there's also heavy grace along the way. Father, I pray that you'd be with us today. I just, I just pray that you would continue to move in hearts and minds and that you would stir us to good works. We know the book of James teaches us, Father, that we can't be saved by good works, but by good works we prove that we are saved. Help us to not confuse those things, Father, but to respond to the truth of your word in repentance and faith in your Son. Forgive us where we have failed you, for we know we have failed you greatly, but we know that your grace is even greater. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.